want us to continue looking this morning uh, in the book of James, as is our series, and uh, and we're going to talk about another matter that James deals with. I told you at the beginning the reason I love this book is because this is about faith in shoe leather. This is about the practical side of living our faith, and I guess you can say he addresses the issues that just about all Christians have, and he does so in a very practical way. And this morning, I want us to talk about what it means to be a wise person, a wise person. Now, a lot of people today confuse intelligence with wisdom, don't they? But they're not the same thing. You see, you can be brilliant and be a fool at the same time. You can know all the mysteries of the universe, but if you don't know God, you're a fool. How do we know that? Because the Bible says the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. You can be incredibly brilliant and be a fool at the same time. Intelligence and wisdom are not the same thing. But if you want to know the secret to being smart, the secret to being smart is to add wisdom. The Bible says in Proverbs 9, 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. And in chapter 16 and verse 16 of Proverbs, it says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Now, wisdom is not complicated. James has already addressed this one time. In fact, children are often wiser than adults. Would you agree with that? Because they don't have to be persuaded of a lot of things and because they use common sense that they've learned through their brief life experiences. Let me share some wisdom that has come from children. Listen to these. Patrick, age 10, never trust a dog to watch your food. (laughs) It's wise, isn't he? Michael, age 14, when your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. Joel, age 10, don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. (laughs) Andrew, age 9, puppies still have bad breath even after eating a breath mint. Talia, age 11, when your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. <laughs> Amir, age nine, you can't hide a piece of broccoli in your milk. <laughs> Mitchell, age 12, don't, <laughs> don't sneeze in front of your mom when you're eating a cracker. And Michael, age 14, says, never tell your mom her diet's not working. (laughs) Isn't that good? Well, James wants all of us to get smart, amen? And we all want to be wise. And to be wise, we have to understand what wisdom is all about. And that's what our text talks about this morning. If you're physically able to do so, why don't you stand with me? As we read in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, this is what James writes. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, Father, would you open our hearts and our minds to your word? Would you take now my study, my thoughts, and my words, Father, and let them be yours? I pray, Father, that you will speak into our hearts, Father, about our need for godly wisdom. Father, if ever there were a time in our lives where we needed wisdom, it is this day. So would you speak, Father, cause us to listen. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, as I said a moment ago, this is the second time that James addresses this whole matter of wisdom. He also did so in verse 5 of chapter 1. The context in that occasion was about uh, suffering and difficulty and trials. When you're going through those things, if you need wisdom, and the implication is that you do, then ask God. God gives wisdom. God loves to give us His wisdom. Now, that principle transcends the environment or the circumstances of your life. So whether you're going through suffering or difficulty or whether it's just the routines of your daily life, your relationships, your work world, whatever it may be, God has wisdom that he can give to you. And James is reminding these believers right here that there are two kinds of wisdom. And he begins with a rhetorical question. You know what that is. It's a question that doesn't really Uh, beg for an answer the answer is implied he says who is wise and understanding among you he doesn't really expect us to answer that because he already knows what the answer is James just wants God's people to think through what it really means to have the kind of wisdom that comes from God the kind of wisdom that we need from day to day And so what he does is, in these verses that follow that we read, is James draws a contrast between two kinds of wisdom that are both competing for your life, your mind, your soul. Two kinds of wisdom that are competing agendas. And I want to look at those two particular kinds of wisdom that are given to us. First of all, James talks about the wisdom of hell. He talks about the wisdom of hell in verse 15. He says, but the wisdom that, that uh, uh, comes from God is not like this wisdom. He said, this wisdom is earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Today we're told that you need to be on the right side of history. Have you heard that statement? Well, let's make sure we're on the right side of history. How many of you have heard that statement made? It's important to be on the right side of history. Now let me interpret that statement for you this morning because it is so popular and, uh, for many people today. And it sounds so astute, doesn't it? It sounds wise and it sounds so compatible with the age that we're living in. But this statement is really earthly, it's unspiritual, and it is demonic. And it is exactly what James is talking about when he says that this kind of wisdom does not come down from God. Why is that? It is because it is generated out of uh, earthly ideas. And what it, is, uh, what it really means is that you and I must adjust our thinking and acting to the spirit of the age. 
That's why it's earthly. That's why it is uh, demonic. That's why uh, it is unspiritual. Now, the wisdom of hell often sounds good, and it will often feel harmonious and pleasing to others, but the fact is the wisdom that is hellish is a wisdom that is deadly. How do we know that? Well, listen to what Solomon writes in Proverbs 14. He says, there's a way that seems right to a man. Now, that's the wisdom that comes from below. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. In Plato's Republic, he tells a story about some sailors on a ship, and they were supposed to steer by looking to the sun and the stars because you need a fixed point in order to navigate, and that's how you know, navigation on the seas was done for, for hundreds of years. But in Plato's Republic, these sailors thought that they had a better idea, that they didn't need the sun and the stars to navigate by, that they could find their own way. And so what they did is, in the Republic, they, they light a lantern, and they set it on the bow of the ship, and then they try to steer by the lantern. Well, as you can imagine, the outcome isn't good. But that's the way our culture is today, isn't it? That's what we're like. That's what this generation we're living in is doing. We've lost our moorings. We no longer navigate by a fixed standard. It's like what the book of Judges says. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We're living in an age today that navigates by the wisdom of hell. We're living in a culture that says we've got so much light, but we're following a lantern instead of the star of Bethlehem. We declare that we're so smart. We say we're so wise. But as one man put it, it's midnight at high noon. How did we get here? Well, Romans 1 tells us, it tells us how we got here. In Romans 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Listen. It says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. How do they do that? Well, they rewrite history, suppress the truth. How do they do that? They, they redefine relationships. They redefine, they suppress the truth. How, how do they suppress the truth? They, they change the definitions. Why? So that they can, so that they can operate according to their own wisdom. And then he goes on to say in Romans 1, verse 28, he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Did you get that? Did you know in that chapter of Romans, chapter 1, Paul says on three occasions in just a handful of verses, God gave them up to their own wickedness. God gave them up to a debased mind. God gave them up. They think they're so smart. They think they're so wise. The spirit of the age says, we got this. We got it all figured out. But God gave them up. You want to operate that way? I'll let you operate that way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of destruction. The wisdom that comes from hell, that is uh, uh, spiritual, that is demonic, that is earthly, says we got this. We don't need God. We don't need God's way. We suppress the truth. And you know, God just says, have it your way. He gives us up. 
to that kind of wisdom, that kind of foolishness which brings about our own ruin. That's hellish wisdom. And James gives us a couple of insights into hellish wisdom. Let me give them to you. First of all, he talks about how hellish wisdom is revealed. Again, he, he classifies it. He characterizes it. Hellish wisdom has no spiritual value whatsoever, ever. And James gives and identifies it with three characteristics. There are three things you need to know. First of all, it's earthly. That means it, it came from man. It didn't come from God. It came from man. It's not generated out of heaven. It's generated from humanity. Humanity on its own always believes it has a better way. It is earthly. That's what he says. Secondly, he says it's unspiritual. That means this. It's driven by the flesh. It's based on your senses. You know, how you feel, how you see, what you hear. We're hearing today all kinds of things that have become... Uh, or, or at least considered to be facts based on sensation. Well, this is how I feel. I feel like this. I feel like this. I identify with this. I identify with this. That's all sensate. And by the way, here's the thing. When people start arguing on the basis of feeling, logic goes out the window. Did you know you can never win an emotional argument? There's an old uh, rule in the legal world that says this, if the truth is on your side, argue the truth. If the facts are on your side, argue the facts. If neither is on your side, scream and shout and pound the table. I think you know where we are today. And that's uh, the unspiritual nature. It is the flesh. I, I feel, this is what I feel. And how many times have I told you through the years, you know, we hear folks say this, well, I believe the Bible, but... I believe the Bible is true, but I just feel. I know what God says, but I just feel. And sh surely God would, God would appreciate the way I feel, and He would accept my feelings over the truth. That's where we are. It's unspiritual, He says. And then 30 said, it's de demonic. It's part of the spiritual warfare. We talked a little bit about that last week in, in our discussion about the tongue because uh, James says the tongue is set on fire from hell. But did you know also the wisdom of this world is demonic? It is also sourced out of hell. That's what James says. It's part of this spiritual warfare that you're involved in. It is the devil's way of misleading you. And by the way, he's very crafty and he's very good of misdirection misdirecting uh, us to believe something because it sounds good even if it doesn't match up with the Word of God. In fact, we all almost feel like at times when you listen to the wisdom of the world that, that God needs to make an adjustment, that God needs to adjust His truth to accommodate the right side of history, the right side of where we are. This is demonic. It is a part of the scheme. It is a part of the agenda of the devil himself. And the, uh, any advice, any kind of wisdom that leads you away from God, any kind of wisdom that leads you in an opposite direction of the truth of God is hellish. And by the way, it has to be rejected. Even if it sounds good to the age. Peter and John are examples of rejecting this very kind of worldly counsel. In Acts chapter 4, you may remember, they had healed a man, a lame man. And the man, it created a stir. 
And people were listening to the message that they had to proclaim about Jesus. And it upset both political leaders and religious leaders of the day. And so they called Peter and John in before the council. And they, they, they beat them. And then they charged them, the scripture says, not to speak about Jesus anymore. It was creating disruption. And uh, they said, don't teach in the name of Jesus. Do you remember what Peter's response to them was? Peter and John, the scripture says in Acts 4, 18 and 20, answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's an example of rejecting any kind of worldly wisdom that takes you away from the truth of God. They knew where the line could not be crossed. And I want to tell you, more and more in the age we're living, you're going to have to discover that line. Because the lines are being drawn more and more in our uh, age, in particular with those that are followers of Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to know, when do I say that's a line too far? Or in military terms, that's a bridge too far. James reminds us that the wisdom that comes out of this world is unspiritual and earthly and demonic. But next he shows us the results of hellish wisdom. The results of hellish wisdom. Did you notice that in verse 16? You've got your Bibles open there. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Wisdom birthed in hell eventually leads to two things, he says. Number one is disorder. The Bible says that the devil is all about chaos and lies. John 8, 44, you, uh, he is the father of lies. He is, the, he is the author of confusion. He's all about disorder. I read about an incident as I was studying for this message. I read about an incident that happened several years ago at a church in North Carolina. The pastor thought that it would make a point, and so on a Sunday morning, he put on a devil suit, a red devil suit, and uh, with a, a, a pitchfork and, and all the stuff, you know, that goes with that kind of costuming. And, uh, and on that Sunday morning, before the people arrived, he went out in front of the church, and he had, he had put together a sign that said, Do not attend this church. And with his pitchfork and his sign, he began to, to march back and forth in front of the church. And he was trying to use a little reverse psychology. You know, if the devil doesn't want people to go here, this means this is a place that they ought, ought to go. He's trying to use a little reverse psychology. When people began to show up, they didn't know what was happening. And when they saw it, they got alarmed. Little children started crying. Adults got nervous, and somebody called the police. The police came out there, and they arrested the devil and, uh, uh, for trespassing. <laughs> and don't you wish it were that easy? They arrested the devil, and when they took the mask off, they, they realized that they had arrested the pastor. It was the pastor underneath the costume. Now, that's a little humorous. actually happened, and it created disorder and confusion at the church. 
by the minister dressed in the devil's suit. But I want to tell you this morning what's even more disordering and distressing and chaotic to the church. It's when the devil dresses in a minister's suit or in a Christian suit. 2 Corinthians 11, 14, 15 says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Listen, don't be fooled. The devil is a master communicator who creates disorder on purpose, and he divides you through cunning lies, deceitful theology, and smooth talk that sounds wise, but is all a scam. You know, today we're having to learn how to recognize scams, aren't we? On the internet and in email and on our phones. And we have to learn how to recognize that. Now, today my wife called me this past week and she said, I need to tell you about a message popped up on my phone. What do I do with this? I said, that's a scam. That's a scam. I said, don't do anything with it. For By all means, don't respond to it. It was a scam. We're having to learn how to do that. You know what? The devil is a master of trying to trick us. He used scams and schemes, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, that that he has the schemes that we need to put on the armor of God to avoid the schemes of the devil. He's a master at that. But not only is he a master of disorder and confusion, he he also produces vile behavior in our lives. Wickedness and evil activity are the byproducts. Did you see that in verse 16 at the bottom? Disorder and every vile behavior. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. If you note there in that verse, James says that the wisdom of hell produces jealousy and selfish ambition. Those are vile behaviors. The devil always appeals to our self-centered nature, doesn't he? We're, I mean, he doesn't have to do a lot of work, right? I mean, by by nature, we're self-centered. And the devil knows that, and he will turn that uh, on you. He will will use that kind of self-centeredness that is there, and he'll try to ruin you with it. We see that as far back as the garden. You remember? You remember what the devil said to Eve? Has God really said, God's holding out on you? Number, number next, God knows that if you eat of that tree, that you're going to be like him. And God is so selfish that he's exclusively put that tree there for him so that you can't be like him. God is selfish. That's the way the devil operates. And he, he works on our, on our self-centeredness to try to persuade us to go in directions that God, for our own safety and security, never intended. James helps us identify the characteristics of wisdom that's birthed in hell. It's important to understand that, especially in the age where you live, so that you are not deceived. So James wants us to understand. Do you understand? He was right. This is 2,000 years ago, and he's writing to them. He's saying, do you understand what the wisdom of hell looks like. But then he contrasts that against the next insight that I want you to see, and that's the wisdom of heaven. 
So he says, here's the wisdom of hell. Do you get it? Do you understand? Do you recognize it? This is the wisdom of hell. But he says, here's the good news. There's a wisdom from heaven. But the wisdom from above, he says in verse 17, the wisdom from above. Now, now that he's clarified the kind of wisdom that should not characterize our lives, what he wants to do is help us understand the kind of wisdom that should shape and characterize our life. And just like the hellish wisdom revealed before, he, he gives us a couple of insights. First of all, he gives us the insight of the revelation of heavenly wisdom. What does heavenly wisdom reveal to us? Well, he, he tells us there's a, there's a long list of, of characteristics that he gives us there. It's, in fact, they're similar to the fruit of the Spirit. These things, he says, if you want to recognize what heavenly wisdom is, in contrast to the hellish wisdom of the world, he said these are the things, these are the, the things that will operate in our life if our lives are characterized by God's wisdom. The first is, he says, uh, uh, heavenly wisdom is pure. What does that mean? Well, it means it makes you wise in dealing with sin. Um, it, it, it makes you wise in avoiding sin. The wise person is pure in relationships. The, the person whose wisdom is from above is pure in their relationship. And guess what it'll help you do? It'll help you have pure motives. The wisdom that's from above, it shapes and gives us pure motive uh, for how we live. The wise person is pure in behavior. Remember, the hellish behavior is vile. Every evil practice that becomes justified in God's wisdom, God's insight will help you fight sinful habits and live in purity for Him. But it's not only pure, it's also peaceable, he says. Do you see that? What does that mean? Well, it means that God's wisdom helps us avoid being cantankerous. It helps us avoid being hostile, divisive, and mean-spirited. Look, <clears throat> I want a church that stands without compromise on God's Word. Amen? Amen? But I want us to stand on God's Word because we love the truth, not because we want to fight. Uh, not because we have an angry spirit. God help us from that. Speaking the truth in love, we're told. And God's wisdom is the key to doing that. You can try to do it for God in your own wisdom, and guess what? You'll just become a mean, angry hostile Christian. But what we want to be is believers who are characterized by the peaceable wisdom of God that doesn't compromise the truth, that doesn't bend on the truth, that doesn't bow on the truth, but is always, always characterized by our love for God and love for others. The third thing he says about uh, God's wisdom is it's uh, gentle. Did you notice that? The word gentle? That's a compound Greek word which means to fit into, that is to fit into the situation. It doesn't mean to compromise, it means to fit in, it means to know how to rightly adjust. It means that God's wisdom helps us adjust in things that really don't make a difference. You know, there are a lot of things, you know, my, my, my dear friend Bill Anderson told me years ago as a young minister, he said, Ray, remember, not every, not every fight is Armageddon. Not every fight is Armageddon. There are some fights that aren't even worth fighting. There are some, he says, but when it's a moral issue, he said, don't you ever back down. Don't ever back down. But it's important 
our approach, isn't it? And there's some things that just don't make a difference. For example, one time Abraham Lincoln was sitting at dinner with some very elegant people. But there was one man who was at that dinner who was not so elegant and he didn't have such good manners. And that man took his coffee, he blew on it, and poured the coffee into, into his saucer and he drank out of the saucer. I guess that tells you a little bit about my background, but my grandfather used to do that. I never understood it as a kid. He'd pour it in a cup, blow on it, then pour it in his saucer, and then drink it out of the saucer and look at me and grin. I'm just a little guy. I remember that. And he cooked his coffee, by the way, on a a stove that was fed by wood, a wood-burning stove. And he'd percolate that coffee there, and then he'd get it, and it'd be so blistering hot... I mean, people today that haven't drank percolated coffee don't know what hot coffee is. But he would pour it in his saucer. Anybody else ever seen somebody drink their coffee out of their saucer? See, look at all the country people here. (laughs) I found out later on that the reason he did that is that it cooled the coffee down. But at any rate, that happened at this, this... Uh, This social event, President Lincoln is sitting there, and all of these eloquent people are sitting there, and this, I guess, a kind of a ruffian guy, you know, he pours his in the saucer, and he begins to drink out of the saucer. And, of course, some of the ladies at the table were aghast when they saw what this man was doing. And when Lincoln saw what happened, Lincoln took his own coffee cup, blew on it, poured some in his saucer, and for the rest of the evening, he also drank his coffee out of the saucer. Now, to me, that's, that's a gentleman. To me, that's a man who knew how to adapt in a matter that really just didn't make a difference, did it? He was a man who was willing to fit into the situation. That's what James means when he uses this word gentleman. But then he says it's, it's rational. Did you notice that? It's, it's open-minded, uh, he said. This actually means to not be stubborn. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to open up your mind and let everything rush in. That's not what it's talking about. Listen, we need to, uh, we need to open up our minds and push it all out and then shut it again is what we, most of us need to do. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, someone who's stubborn. And he's saying the wise person reflects willingness to change when they're wrong without fighting or anger. You know, every once in a while, somebody that says something is actually right. Somebody that corrects you is actually right. And that's when wisdom says, I need to accept that. I need to hear that. And that's what he's talking about is is rational, is not resistant, is not stubborn. Then he says it's merciful. It means to operate with compassion, affection, and kindness. The wisdom of God causes a person to treat others with the same kind of mercy that they've received from God. By the way, even when you don't agree with someone, you can treat them mercifully. You see, you were a rebel when God redeemed you. You were... You were in full rebellion when God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to aren't you glad God gets the mercy thing? And this is what James says, he says, the wisdom of God knows how to treat people compassionately with mercy. 
By the way, I've had Christians tell me this, well, I don't have the gift of mercy. I tell you, I don't have the gift of mercy. But I don't get a pass, and neither do you. Because this isn't about do you have the gift or do you not have the gift. This is a Christian virtue. This goes along with the wisdom of God, knowing how to be merciful, how to be compassionate and kind with that same kind of compassion and mercy that he demonstrates to us. And then number six, he says, it's full of good fruits. This means it's engaged in ministry. The wisdom of God will always result in ministry in your life. The wise person acts as an agent and a servant of God to those in need. A wise person acts as a servant. God, I'm your servant. I'm your ambassador, the Bible says, Paul says. We are ambassadors. Jesus tells us, he that would be greatest in the kingdom, let him be servant of all. It's full of good fruit. God's wisdom will result in ministry in your life and through your life. And then he says it's impartial. The wise person is not a snob. They show no favoritism or partiality to anyone. Just as God has been impartial, so must those who serve him. Impartiality says, I will not show favorites. I will not be biased. That's what he says. He says, God's wisdom, you know, for God so loved most of the world. For God so loved the world. All inclusive. God is not slow concerning his promise, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it is that kind of impartiality that should be ours or characterize us if we're living by the wisdom of God. And then finally, he says, it is sincere. That means it's not self-serving. The wise person knows the truth, but they don't compromise the truth. And they don't entertain false ideas. They're trustworthy. They're undivided. And they follow fully the teachings of God with all sincerity and genuineness of heart. Well, these are the things that characterize the wisdom of God when it operates in our life. And it's worth knowing these things. We know, we learn the characteristics of the, you know, not hard to figure out the hellish wisdom. But James says, look, all of these things should characterize the wisdom of God. And you say, well, do I strive for these things? Here's his point. First, what you do is you call for the wisdom of God. And then you allow the wisdom of God to take root in your life. Is this the wisdom of man? Is this the wisdom of God? You know, the old we have our bracelets. Some of you are still wearing them after all these years, and we continue to give them out. We go through them all the time. God first. Some of you remember, though, there was a bracelet some years ago, WWJD. It really, it's based on a no- novel by Charlie Shedd from many, many decades ago. A good book, In His Steps, is, was the basis of that band. They didn't have it in the book. They didn't even know what bands were when that book was written. But the, the whole point was to, to say, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Now, I know it sounds like an oversimplification, but you know what the truth is? How much better would our approach to life be if we really did say, what would Jesus do? You know what that is? It's another way of saying, what is the wisdom of God? What's the wisdom of God? 
So I can do this or I can do this. I need wisdom. What would Jesus do? Might just help me find the wisdom of God. Might help me understand what the wisdom of God uh, really is. And so when you're facing with one of those dilemmas and you're trying to figure it out, ask yourself, what is the wisdom of God? Am I living by the wisdom of God? Or if you say, I don't have the wisdom of God. God, I need your wisdom. And in the first chapter when James says, if any of you lack wisdom, and you do, let him ask of God who gives liberally, this idea is a present tense idea. In other words, it's not, well, I did that a bunch of years ago. already asked him. It is a present tense, meaning I ask and I keep on asking. I just keep on asking, God, I need wisdom. I know I asked you yesterday for it, but God, I need wisdom today. Okay. He says he gives liberally. I I need wisdom. I need wisdom. There are some of you who are watching on live stream, television, listening on radio in this live audience, and you're facing something right now, and you need wisdom. Listen, make sure you get God's wisdom. God, I need your wisdom. Because there is a way that seems right to a man, that's worldly wisdom, that's hellish wisdom, but it leads to destruction. I can tell you this, God's wisdom will never ruin you. It might take you down a path that you didn't expect to go down, but it will never ruin you. So what are the results? And here's the last thing I share with you. What are the results of heavenly wisdom? Well, he says in verse 18 there, it produces a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. What's the harvest of righteousness that it produces? Well, it produces peace is what he said. Peace. He's mentioned that a couple of times. Life is full of a lot of discord, isn't it? But there is a peace that passes all understanding. There's a supernatural kind of peace. And I'm convinced that that is the kind of peace that will take you through just about anything. That's the kind of peace you need. That's the kind of peace you need to get up. We pray for peace in the world. There's a, there is a way to have peace in this world. Right now, our antennas are all up because of the Middle East. But how do we get there? How, do, how does peace uh, happen? Well, it begins with peace with God. It's man's greatest need is peace with God. We, you, me, those outside of these walls and outside of our audience... Uh, need to know the peace that only comes in a relationship with God. Man needs to know God in order to have peace, peace in their mind and peace in their soul. Peace with God, a harvest of righteousness results. The wisdom of God produces this harvest of righteousness that is peace, peace with God, but then peace with one another. Now watch this, the order is important. When a man finds peace with God, he'll discover how to have peace with people around him. When a man or a woman finds peace with God, peace in their soul, guess what? They find out how they can have peace with one another. And then third, peace in the world. You see, when people find peace with one another because they have found peace, peace with God, guess what we'll see? We'll see a world at peace. You know the, you know the secret to everybody getting along? It's not government. It's not Washington. Hello? It's not Montgomery. It's not downtown. 
You know the secret to, to us getting along? It's peace with God. That's why the mission to change lives is so important. When you change a soul, when you change a life, when you bring peace to God to a person, guess what? You change his world, and, guess, and, and by, in so doing, you, you have the opportunity to change the world around other people. It's why, we, it's why we do this mission emphasis each year. We believe in the mission to get the good news of God's love to other people because we know that God changing a person's life will do more than any peace accords, any, and I'm for those things, and, and any, any official that we elect, any of that. Jesus will do more in a moment in coming into somebody's life than all the other things of our world can do for the entirety of a person's life. That's why we do that. That's why we support these. That's why we do all of this. Because time is running out. You believe that? Time is running out. On July 25th, maybe you remember this, the year 2000, Air France, an Air France Concorde flight, flight number 4590, crashed on takeoff in Paris. When it crashed, 100 passengers, 9 crew, and 4 people on the ground were killed. Because when it took off, it banked real quickly and plunged to the ground and exploded in a massive fireball. The cause of the crash, they found out later on, was a 16-inch strip of metal that they found on the runway. And that strip of metal burst the aircraft's tire on takeoff, and the debris from the tire blew out and ruptured a fuel tank in the aircraft's wing. As the plane was taking off, fire emerged but the pilot was not in a position where he could halt the takeoff. He had to continue, and his plan was that he would make an emergency landing at Le Bourget Airport, which was only about a minute away. He never made it, of course. As investigators sought to discover the reason for the accident, they went back and they listened to the black box. They listened to the tapes of the pilots' conversations with each other and with the control tower. And the senior pilot's last words as he fought to try to save the stricken airplane were these words, too late, too late. Peace with God can only be made in this life, only in this life. And we only have this life to live on earth and to make that decision. And if we fail to make our peace with God now or peace with man before our life ends, those two words will be true of us. Too late. Too late. You want to know who the wise person is? It's the way James starts that passage. Who is the wise and understanding? You don't know who the wise person is? The wise person is the one who puts their trust in the prince of peace and discovers the peace of the prince while they still can, before it's too late. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the peace that has been provided through Jesus Christ who became our peace as your word says.
I pray this morning for any who are watching on television or live stream, those who may be listening by radio, and of course all of those in this place who have never put their trust in Jesus Christ, who have never found their peace. They've tried to find it in religion. They've even tried to find it in church. They hadn't found it in either of those. And that's because they can only find peace in a relationship with you. And I pray for those right now that they would do what your word says. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if that's you listening right now with heads bowed, eyes closed in this building, wherever you may be, why don't you take this moment to call on him? Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. I know I'm a sinner. I want the peace that only you can bring to my soul. I invite you to come into my life, forgive me, and be my Savior. You'll hear that. For some of you who know Christ as your Savior, but your life is in turmoil right now. God doesn't want you living in turmoil. He wants you to walk by faith, trusting Him experiencing the peace that passes all understanding. It's not about what circumstances you're going on. It's about who's the God of your circumstances. Today, why don't you just tell him, God, I want your peace. I've been trying to figure it out. I've been listening to the wisdom of the world. God, give me the wisdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation? I'll be here at the front. Our staff will be on the sides. Maybe there's a decision for you this morning. Maybe you pray that prayer. And by the way, if you're watching by live stream television, there will be information on your screen that will tell you what you can do if you made that decision today. Or you wish to join our church, whatever the decision may be. You can use that tear-off panel if you're in this live audience and drop it in the baskets or take it by the Welcome Center. But I want to call you to a personal moment of invitation. If today you've called on Christ to be your Savior, would you slip out from the balcony of this ground floor, make your way to one of our staff, just said, hey, I prayed that prayer. I invited Christ in. Maybe you say, I don't need to do that, but I do need a church home, and today I'd like to become part of the Ridgecrest family. And people do it all the time, all through the week, all the time. And maybe today is that moment for you. Why don't you slip out and come? Take one of us say, I'd like to become a member here at Ridgecrest. We'd love to have you. We're not a perfect church, but we are a healthy one. Maybe you're here this morning. There's some other decision that God's put upon your heart. Maybe you need to be baptized. We won't do it today. We'll schedule that. But maybe you need to do that. Would you slip out? Would you come on? Or maybe you want to come and fill this altar up. Just talk to him. I'm going to tell you every time I talk about this altar, there's something powerful about a bent knee before God. And so I want to invite you to come and to use it. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of it right now. Brother Aaron leads us.